Verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's an interesting account. We've seen these commands and each week we've sought to answer the question, what does this command mean for the people of Israel? What does it mean for us? And what does all the Bible say about this command? We will do that again this morning while also emphasizing this passage where God's people can't stand to hear God's Word anymore. Try to make sense of what that means. And I want to point your attention to three realities from these verses that I believe are important. The first of them is this. Coveting is the last command, but it is connected to the first command. Coveting is the last command God gives, but it is intricately connected to the first command God gives. What is coveting? Coveting is desiring something that you don't have. It's wanting something that is not currently yours and that someone else has. And coveting is rooted in the belief that if you could just get what it is you're longing for, then you would truly be satisfied. So to covet, by definition, is to be discontent with what you have as you long for something that you don't currently possess. We typically think of coveting at a base level of coveting someone else's possession, coveting their nice vehicle, coveting their nice wardrobe, coveting their house or their land, things that can be bought with money. But coveting can go much deeper, can it? Coveting can go far beyond just what other people possess that they've bought with money. You can covet someone else's spouse, according to Exodus 20. You can covet someone else's job, someone else's body that you wish you had. You can covet someone else's church and all they've got going on. You can covet a relationship or friendships that other people have. You can covet children. You can covet a million things. And the reality is is that every one of us, if we're honest, we long for and desire and covet something that we don't have. And according to Exodus 20, the 10th command, this is important enough to God, it made His top 10 list. He doesn't just want us to not murder and commit adultery. And He doesn't just want us to not steal and lie and remember the Sabbath and honor authority. He wants us to not desire things that He has not provided for us. 
And in order for us to find what it is in our lives that we covet, we need only ask, what is our if-onlys? If only I had this or that, then my life would be fulfilled and satisfying. Or negatively, if only I didn't have this or that in my life, then my life would be satisfied. Then I would have the joy and the peace that I am after. If we want to know what we covet, we have to answer the question, what is it that I think if only I had or didn't have this, then then I would fulfill my purpose, then I would be fulfilled and satisfied. Our if-onlys can be trials that we wish would leave, or our if-onlys can be longings, things that we wish we had, but all of them, positive and negative, are rooted in our discontentment with our lives and our circumstances. When we are discontent with our lives and we covet things that we don't have, we are also oftentimes unknowingly questioning the character of God who is in control of all things. We've seen as we've walked through these commands that we can break these commands in our hearts even if we don't in our actions. You might not have ever killed anyone or you might not have ever committed adultery and yet we've seen that if we live lives full of lust and anger that in God's eyes we've broken these commands. We've seen that even if we don't break these commands horizontally against other people, we can break them vertically against God. We might not have ever stolen someone's possessions. We might not have ever told a lie with our lips. And yet we can steal things from God that we're supposed to be good stewards of by keeping things for ourselves that should be devoted to the Lord. We can lie about God, not with our words, but with our actions as we say that we're for the Lord and yet our lives declare to everyone watching that we're for this world. We've seen this emphasis and I've tried intentionally to bring it out as we've walked through the Ten Commandments that God cares about our hearts, God cares about our worship, God cares about our vertical obedience, and I've intentionally brought that out in each of these commands because I believe that it's actually inspired from God in our text. Notice how God bookends these commands. He bookends the Ten Commandments with the first and the tenth, both of which deal with our hearts and our worship, with what we love, with what we trust in. What's the first command? You shall have no other gods before me. We've discussed at length how every one of us is prone to worship idols. Maybe not a golden calf. Maybe not a false god that we keep in our home and bring out and lay down prostrate and bow before. Idols are merely God replacements. Things in life that God has created that we give our allegiance to. Things in life that we don't believe that we can cope if we do not have. Things in life that we're trusting in to ultimately satisfy our deepest longings. That's the first command. Have no other gods before me. What's the tenth? Do not covet what you don't have. Which is really just another way of saying, don't make things into idols and don't believe that things or people or changed circumstances will satisfy you more than God. 
Idolatry and coveting are bookended on the Ten Commandments because God wants to emphasize for us that He cares about our hearts, He cares about our desires, He cares about our longings. So how does idolatry and coveting tie together? I believe coveting, what we don't have, is the means by which we worship our idols. Or another way to say that is, when you covet something, you are revealing the idol that you are trusting in more than God to satisfy you. And these twin sins of idolatry and coveting, they're at work in every temptation you've ever faced. In every manifestation of sin, whatever it is for you that you think, if I could only get this right in my life with the Lord, if I could only, if I could only subdue this sin, if I could only put this sin to death, what's underneath whatever that sin is for you is coveting and idolatry. What's going on in your heart, what you're trusting in to satisfy. Think about it with me, just looking at the Ten Commandments. We'll walk backwards for them, and I'll try to show you what I'm, I'm saying. Why do we bear false witness and lie? Why? Because it will help us to get something that we currently don't have. Something that we believe will satisfy us. And if we don't tell the truth, it'll help us acquire whatever that is. Whatever that is that we think that we need and we're willing to lie for is something that we're coveting, something that we're worshiping, something that we're believing will satisfy if we can get it. So we're willing to break God's command and we lie. Why do we steal? There's something we don't have and we believe that if we could get it, that would satisfy us. If we could possess it, if we could acquire it, even if it means stealing and breaking God's command, then... We will be fulfilled. Then we will be satisfied. Why do we commit adultery? Why do we live lives of lust? Because we covet what is forbidden. And we believe that the feelings and pleasure that come with those sins will satisfy us more than God and more than our marriage can. Why do we murder? Why do we live lives marked by angry outbursts? Because there's something we want... And we believe that if we can get it, then we'll be satisfied. And someone is getting in our way of getting what we want. So we'll do whatever it takes to punish them and remove them from the situation so that we can keep what we already have or get what we think will satisfy. Why do we not honor our parents? Why do we not honor authority in our lives? Because we believe that being independent, calling our own shots for our own life, being our own man or woman, that that is what will ultimately satisfy us. And we're worshiping our idol of independence and we're willing to rebel against God by dishonoring authority and going our own way because we believe being independent and going our own way will satisfy us. Why don't we live lives within the divine rhythm that the Sabbath principle provides? Because we want to be in charge of our time. I want to be in charge of my weekly schedule. I want to be in charge of my days and weeks and hours and minutes. And I think that I can create a better divine rhythm than the one that God has created me to live within. I believe I can find more satisfaction being in charge of my own time. Why do we misrepresent God? By taking His name in vain and by worshiping graven images. Why do we misrepresent God with our words and with our worship? 
Because we prefer to arrive at truth about God in our own way. We prefer to worship and give our devotion to a God of our own making. A God who meets all of our needs and preferences, who agrees with all of our thinking, instead of having a God that stands above us and dictates to us who He is and how He is to be worshipped. Each of the commands is broken because there's something that we want that we don't have, something that we covet, something that we believe will satisfy us more than God, some idol in our lives that we're believing will provide for us the joy and the hope and the peace that we're after better than God can. That's what's going on underneath all of our sin. That's what's going on. There's something in our heart. There's a rival worship going on inside that oftentimes we don't even think about. Our emotions, our words, our choices reveal what we love, what we desire, what we are coveting. They reveal what our if onlys are. And God bookends His commands with the first and the tenth, which deal with idolatry and coveting, to emphasize again and again and again to us that God is not just interested in what we do, He's interested in what we love. God is not just interested in what we believe, but in whom we trust. God is not just interested in our actions, but in our hearts, our motivations, our desires. I believe that one of the reasons today that we can stand motionless with no feeling, with apathy, when we consider who God is and what He's done for us through Jesus is because we hear about this heart idolatry, but we don't believe it. We don't think our sin is really that bad. We define ourselves by grading on the curve, comparing ourselves to other people who are outright sinning in their public actions of rebellion. Meanwhile, we are more religious. We have a more hidden version of sin, a sin that's going on in our hearts, a sin that no one can judge us for because no one knows my hearts. And yet, friends, if we are honest... Every one of us fights the battle with telling God with our lives and our actions that God is not enough for us. That's why I'm more committed to this than God. That's why I'm trusting in this more than God. That's why I'm excited about this but not God. That's why I'm broken and have no hope when I lose this even when I still have God. That is what's going on in our lives. All of us have idols on our hearts. All of us have if-onlys that we're trusting in. I talk to kids and teenagers and adults all the time who are bored in church. 
I used to be one of them. I get it. They're bored out of their minds in church. They can't tell you what a sermon was about at lunchtime. They they don't think that Sunday school or discipleship classes or putting yourself in the context of other believers to read and think about and consider and discuss the Bible is necessary. Why? Because I know the stories. I got it. Our problem is not that we don't know the stories. It's that we have unrepentant sin in our lives and we got to keep going back to the Word again and again and again. We don't just need to know it up here. We've got to see and feel and experience the power of the Gospel to transform us and to make us different. And the Gospel provides those things for us, but when we're grading ourselves on the curve and giving ourselves a spiritual pat on the back just because we show up to church once a week, We're not thinking about the holiness of God. We're not considering how far short of His standard we are. And because of that, we can be bored with the grace of God. We can grow apathetic with the grace and the mercy God has shown us through Jesus. Our hearts are deceptively wicked so that we are professionals at turning good things God provides into idols that we love and worship more than God. When I consider the Ten Commandments, when I consider the commands of Scripture and I hold them up next to my life, knowing my thoughts and my heart and my intentions and my proclivity to run after the things of this world. When I consider those things and how idolatrous my heart is, it grieves me. It leads me to understand why Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he's given a vision of the Lord, cries out, Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. He doesn't run up to God and give Him a high five and say, I'm glad you're my friend and we're on the same team. He says, woe is me. When I rightly understand the depths of my sin and my depravity, It leads me to despair and hopelessness and a recognition that I can do nothing to fix my biggest problem. When I consider how heinous my heart is, how illicit I am in my idolatry, and then I consider the holy gaze of the Almighty God who does not change, whose standard is perfection, and who cannot dwell near sin without righteously destroying it in His holiness, I am undone by my predicament. And I I don't think that you can rightly understand and appreciate the wonderful grace of Jesus without starting at a place of woe is me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In order to receive the comfort of the gospel, in order to receive the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, 
you have to recognize the poverty of your spirit and mourn over it. And I believe that the the fear that I feel spiritually when I consider these realities of God's holiness and my sinfulness relates to the fear that Israel feels while standing at the base of Mount Sinai hearing the voice of Yahweh booming above. When they hear the Ten Commandments, they don't start applauding. Yay, God! Thank you for giving us these good laws. You're awesome. That's not what they do. They plead with Moses to make God stop speaking to them because they can't stand to hear His holy voice. That's our second truth. The presence of God and the standard of God leads us to trembling. The presence of God and the standard of God should lead fallen sinners to trembling. The people's response is recorded in verse 18. At the base of Mount Sinai, they have seen God's presence descend in a cloud accompanied by thunder and lightning. They've heard a trumpet And they see smoking from the mountain. They have heard the very voice of God. And it broke them. It terrified them. It caused them to tremble. They experienced firsthand what the author of Hebrews says when he states, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a lot of things that we fear today, right? In a fallen, broken world, we fear tragedy in our families. We fear cancer or that dangerous diagnosis. We fear losing our jobs and what that will mean for our family. We fear the moral decline of our country. We fear war and terrorism. We fear being disliked by our peers and in our community. We fear living lives that are insignificant and don't count for anything. We fear for our children's futures. We fear the unknown in a broken and fallen world where everything changes but God. It is right to fear things that could happen. But none of those fears, according to the Bible, compares to the fear as a fallen sinner of standing in the presence of a holy God. People today will write upbeat praise songs about God's presence falling on His people today. Friends, if the holy God's presence fell among His people today, we would reverently be in awe. We would be shocked by His grandeur. We would be amazed by His majesty. We would be undone by His power. We would shut our mouths in stunned and terrified silence because the Holy God had drawn near to us as fallen sinners. Because you cannot frivolously and thoughtlessly dance into a Holy God's presence as a fallen sinner. The most famous sermon ever preached in America since its inception was not one that applauded the greatness and specialness of us. Instead, 
It was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, by Puritan Jonathan Edwards in the 17th century. In his sermon, Edwards described the holiness of God and the sinfulness of mankind and the reality of God's holy judgment with such evocative imagery that he was regularly interrupted by his congregation's loud moaning and weeping and the cries of his people who were crying out, What must we do to be saved? Begging him to stop making them think about the holiness of God and their sin. Our culture today, our history books will say that that sermon was the most famous and they will use that as an illustration of how hardcore and mean-spirited and judgmental the Puritans were with their puritanical way of life and condemning everyone else. Many today, if they read that sermon or even if they heard the sentence that I just used to describe it, might be tempted to say, that is not my God. those who flippantly believe that they can prance into the presence of a holy God are believing in a God of their own making, not the God of the Bible. Those who deny the gravity and the grandeur, the holiness and the terror of being in the presence of a holy God as a fallen sinner need only open their Bibles and read for a little while because in it they will find that God's people cannot stand to be too close to Him without crying out for relief and mercy when they approach His presence because it is a fearful thing as a fallen sinner to fall into the hands of a living God. That's why Moses is having the people of Israel cry out to him, You speak to us! The people are crying out to Moses, God, Moses, make God stop. Make Him stop talking to us. We can't keep hearing Him or we're going to die. They recognize that they cannot handle God's holy words on their unholy ears. They cannot handle God's holy presence near their unholy lives. They cannot handle God's holy sight on their unholy eyes. It seems like to us, knowing that God is not just righteous and holy, but He's also gracious and merciful, it seems like a gracious and loving God, if He knew that this is what was going to make His people feel when He got so near, would have kept a little bit more distance. It seems like a loving and gracious God would not draw near to them if He knew that it was going to lead them to fear and trembling. But Moses actually tells them, don't fear, God is actually showing you grace here. God is drawing near to you so that He can break you with His holy presence so that you will be overwhelmed and undone by it so that you will learn to fear God and to not test Him and to obey Him because if you do not have a healthy fear and awe and reverence of God, then you will not obey His Word. You want to live in sin and redefine what sin is, which is popular today? That starts with believing in a God who would never judge me and always accept anything I do. That's not the response of anyone in the Bible who actually encounters God. Moses tells them, in order for you to obey these commands and keep this covenant and not sin, you need to be reminded of who the lawgiver is. You need to feel His presence. In order for you to be holy yourself, you have to know experientially the holiness of God. 
And in the same way that God's presence overwhelms His people here in Exodus 20, God's Word and God's laws and God's standard that is given to us today that we read and consider the standard by which we will be held accountable should overwhelm us and cause us to tremble because we recognize our inability to keep it. We're not standing at the base of Mount Sinai right now. But as we walk through God's Word and we see His standard and we see His demands on our actions and our words and our hearts and our motivations, we should feel our inadequacy and inability to keep them. Because the presence of a holy God, the awareness of His perfect standard, should cause us to fear and tremble. And if it doesn't, then I fear it's possible we might not truly understand who God is and who we are and the predicament that we are in as fallen sinners. That's our second truth. That the presence of God and the standard of God should lead us to tremble. But that's not how the verses end. And there's one last truth I want to draw your attention to, and that's this. That we need a mediator greater than Moses. We need a mediator greater than Moses. Israel cries out to Moses and says, You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses moves near the thick darkness where God will give him the rest of his law. Israel recognizes that they need God. They need God's law. They need God's presence and His blessing in order to live. But they also recognize that they can't get too near to God as sinners without facing His holy judgment. They recognize here that they need a mediator. They need someone who will stand between them and God. And in Exodus, Moses is that man. Moses will go and receive God's law and then come and teach it to Israel. Moses will intercede on behalf of Israel. He will beg God to show Israel mercy whenever they break the covenant in the coming chapters. Moses dwells with God unlike anyone else, really in all of the Old Testament. Moses institutes priests who will draw near to God and will protect and preserve the tabernacle that they're about to build, the place where God's presence will dwell These priests will serve as mediators between God and man after Moses is gone. But there's a problem. Moses is a sinner just like Israel. Moses breaks commandments too. The priests are sinners just like Israel. The priests actually have to offer a sacrifice to atone for their own sin before they can offer a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Even the tabernacle, the moving tent that God's presence will dwell in, is not ideal because God is near His people, but His people can't dwell with Him in His presence. All of these mediators are temporary solutions. Moses receives the law but can't keep the law. The priest makes sacrifices to appease God's judgment in the moment, but they're unable to offer a once-for-all sacrifice to permanently turn away God's wrath. The blood of bulls and goats will never be able to truly pay the penalty for rebellion against God. The tabernacle they will soon construct will enable Israel only to dwell near God, but they still 
still have to keep their distance and they, can't, they still can't dwell with God. The limitations on their mediators and their sacrifices and their tabernacles matter. Why? Because God has promised His people from the beginning after they sinned that He would make a way for God's people to dwell with Him again at peace with Him. God promised back in Genesis 3 to roll back the curses of sin so that mankind who has fallen could dwell with God and experience His blessing and dwell in His presence forever. If you're listening, you might be confused. Because I've been at pains to point out that as sinners, you don't want to be around God. That is a terrifying reality that should cause us to tremble. So you might ask why God's people would actually want to dwell with God if that is what happens when sinners dwell near God. And the answer is, is because that's where God made us to dwell. God created us to be with Him. David writes in Psalm 16 to God, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Dwelling with God is where the peace and the hope and the joy and the satisfaction that we all desire is found. Dwelling at peace with God is where the fulfillment of all of our if-onlys is ultimately found. All of our coveting, all of our idolatry that's in our lives occurs because we have misplaced desires for something that only God is able to give us. But God, for His presence to become a place of blessing an everlasting joy instead of a place of fear and trembling, then something seemingly impossible has to happen. We must be made right with God because we've rebelled against Him. Our sin must truly be atoned for. Full forgiveness must be granted, but granted to us in a way that will pardon us while simultaneously upholding who God is as a holy and righteous God. And Moses can't do that. And priests can't do that. And good works can't do that. And obedience to the law can't do that. And prophets can't do that. And kings can't do that. And sacrifices can't do that. And the tabernacle can't do that. And temple can't do that. Only one could do that. Only God could do that. And He sent His Son whose name is Jesus. And Jesus, unlike Moses, could both teach and perfectly keep the law of God. Jesus, unlike the priest, is able to serve as a great high priest who does not need to atone for his own sin because he has never sinned. He is perfectly able to intercede for his people. Unlike the animal sacrifices that would temporarily appease God's judgment, Jesus came as our Passover lamb who made a once-for-all sufficient sacrifice. His blood truly can atone for our sin and avert God's holy judgment. Unlike the tabernacle and the temple, 
which keep God's people away from a holy God, Jesus Christ comes and through His life, death, and resurrections opens up the path for people who are forgiven to dwell again in the presence of God at peace with God. Jesus opens the path to true and lasting joy. He opens the path to living this life with contentment in God instead of living this life coveting what we don't have. Jesus opens the path to living a life of worshiping the true God instead of running after idols and God replacements. Jesus makes the way for us to truly live at peace with a holy God so we can experience His presence, which is where the fullness of joy is. We can live in His presence in joy, not fear, in love, not terror. Through Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence that we are pardoned forever and ever. Because of Jesus, we need not fear a holy God. Our holy God has poured out His wrath on Jesus in our place. We are counted forgiven. We are counted not guilty. We are given a righteousness that is not our own. It is just as if I never sinned and just as if I always obeyed. That is what Jesus does for His people. Jesus Christ empowers us to live for God now with the presence of God inside of us while we live our lives longing and waiting to dwell in His presence forever. Jesus is the greater mediator, the greater high priest, the greater sacrifice, the greater tabernacle. Jesus is what all of these things have pointed forward to all along. Because as 2 Corinthians 1 says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. Jesus is the climax of the Bible, the author of salvation, the only way to peace with God. Jesus is the guarantee of our pardon before Him. And because of that, what we do with Jesus matters eternally. It is His finished work, not our obedience to the law that saves us. It is His finished work that empowers us to keep these commands from the heart, by the power of the Spirit. What you do with Jesus matters. If you're here and you find yourself coveting things that God has made, trusting that if I could only get this, or if I could only remove this from my life, then I would be satisfied. If that's you, friends, repent and look to Jesus. Trust in Him. And as a believer, He will empower you to see Him for who He is and to turn away from and seek to destroy the idols in your lives, if you're here this morning and you fear the day of standing before the holy and righteous God, look to Jesus and believe. Surrender to Him as Lord. He's enough. He's done the work that you can't do. And He's worth laying your life down for. I pray this morning as we respond that you'll join me in crying out to Him.
that you'll join me in repenting of our covetous hearts, that you'll join me in remembering God's powerful and forgiving and transforming grace. Whatever your need is today, whatever hardship you're going through, remember your greatest predicament is a broken relationship with a holy God. Remember, your greatest desires will only be fulfilled in being reconciled to that God and dwelling with Him one day forever. These things are possible because of a mediator greater than Moses, a slain Savior, and a resurrected King whose name is Jesus. Will you join me this morning in looking to Him, doing business, with God and being led as the Spirit calls. Father God, You are a good and gracious King. You are also a holy and righteous King. God, I pray that if Your Word has spoken to us this morning, Lord, that You will help us to respond as You lead. Whether that's at the altar or in our seats, whether that's sitting and praying or standing and singing, God, I pray that Your Word will not return void. And that if Your Word has struck us this morning, that You will give us the boldness to respond as You lead. God, we love You and we thank You For Jesus Christ, our Savior and our salvation, we thank You for the undeserved grace that He gives to us. We thank You that we can boldly approach Your throne with confidence only because of Jesus. Help us to do business with You. Help us to bring You glory as we respond this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Will you stand together with us?